We are, we're going to continue uh, in 1 Peter this morning. We'll be 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 8 through 22, if you've got a Bible and you want to open up to there. Uh, before, we, before we get into uh, looking at what Scripture has to say to us this morning, uh, it's just, we're singing that song, and those words, it is well with my soul, um, those are uh, words on a screen to you and to us until something happens in life that is so difficult that those words would actually become something that is so close to your heart that they're like the only thing that would sustain you in the midst of what's happening in your life. And there's a family there's a family in our church who their son had an awful car accident and he is in the hospital and it's just I mean it's like an hour to hour thing whether or not he is going to survive. And I sat in the hospital with them just a couple days ago and was praying with them. And in the middle of what I just cannot even fathom, I heard the father in that family pray those words. That it is well with his soul. And I just can't even imagine that something that we sing that can become so routine or can just become the words of a song that I sang when I was little in church and then have kind of been redone in this neat sort of way by a band today and that sound really great, that those could become actual truth that a person in the midst of just unbelievable pain would cry out to the Lord. Let go my soul and trust in him. It is well with my soul. And standing just over here this morning, and like I can't even sing the words, and it's not my child. The the stuff that we sing, the stuff that we see in scripture has purpose. We don't, just, we don't just sing songs here that we think sound good, and we don't just open up the Bible because we think it's some sort of self-help guide. We look to the Lord as the source of our life, and we look to the Lord as the source of our hope and the source of our joy and the source of our peace, regardless of what's happening in the midst of our life. And uh, we're going to work our way through First Peter this morning, but maybe the most important thing I think we can do this morning would be as a church body to lift up our prayer on behalf of this family within our church. And so, if you would, just for a moment, join me. Lord, we are far too small and 
finite to understand everything that happens even in our own life on one single day, let alone everything that happens in and around us every single day for all of time. And yet you are so immense and so uh, great and all-seeing and all-knowing, Lord, that there are times in life where we have no other option but to look to you and say that we can trust. Lord, we have no other option but to look to you and in the midst of our hurt and in the midst of our pain to just cry out from our soul that it is well, even if it doesn't feel well. So Lord, I want to lift up our brothers and sisters in Christ who are experiencing just unbelievable hurt and emotional pain and mental turmoil while they wait, Lord, God, would you be near to them right now, God? Would your presence be very close to them and very dear to them, Lord? Would it is well with my soul be not just the words on a screen, God, not just something that we sing on a Sunday morning, Lord, but would that be near and dear to their hearts? Lord, we know that you are powerful beyond measure, God. We know that you have the ability to heal, and so we do pray that you would do a miraculous work in this young man's body. God, we pray that you would bring physical life back into his body. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified for that, that people would see your power and they would see what it is that you're capable of doing and they would be drawn to faith in Jesus Christ by that work, Lord. God, but we also pray that it would not be your will to do that. Lord, we pray that you would allow this family to draw close to you and close to one another, that you would move us as a church to just circle around them, Lord, and that by their hope and faith and trust in you, Lord, that people would be drawn to you. God, we pray that you would strengthen them as they wait. We pray that you would give their their hearts and their minds peace. We pray that you would pour out your love and your grace and your mercy into that family, God, and we pray that you would pour out strength and healing into the body of this young man. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you want to flip back to 1 Peter 3, we're going to start making our way through uh, this section of verses. There's a reason why we included as many as we did here, and I'll, I'll get to that later, uh, later in our time together. But I just want to read all of 1 Peter 3, 8 to 22. It's going to take just a minute. So if you've got a Bible or you've got it on your phone and you want to follow along, that would probably be helpful. Scripture says, Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. 
For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do so with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that is God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered, once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. That moves along pretty well and good and then takes a hard and confusing left turn at spirits in prison. And it becomes challenging to work with. And we're, we're faced with a passage of scripture that presents a little bit of a conundrum for us and we need to know how is it that we work through something of this nature. When I was in high school, uh, my senior year, I took calculus. Not because I'm good at math or because I like math, but for the exact opposite reasons. I hate math and I'm not good at it. And I didn't want to ever have to take it again in my life. And so the hope was, do, do this in high school, roll the credit over to college, and never have to take another math class in your life. I made that work, praise the Lord. <laughs> but it was an awful year-long experience for me. I disliked literally every second of it. If you have ever taken calculus or you know anything about calculus, you're, you've got a problem, you do one thing calculus-related, and then like a notebook and a half worth of algebra in order to arrive at an answer that inevitably is not going to be correct. <laughs> at least that was my experience in calculus. You may have fared better than me. And so what would happen for me is that I would often bump into something that I just didn't know what to do with. I had no idea how I was supposed to work through the problem. And so I spent more or less every morning of my senior year of high school in Mr. Gravina's classroom desperately pleading for help. And we would work through the same process Literally every morning. It would go something like this. Uh, Mr. Gravina, I don't understand this problem. Okay, do what you know. And for like 12 to 14 seconds, I would do the one thing I knew how to do. And then I would kind of look at him and I would say, that's all I got. And he would say, okay, let's identify what you don't know. And so I would spend like 30 minutes unrolling all the things I didn't know about what this problem was asking me to do. And he would say, okay, ask, ask whatever questions you have and I'll try to give you whatever answers I can. And so we would back and forth on that. And it always ended the same way. Whether it was there was a test coming up that I was trying to be ready for, or it was just a, a piece of homework that I was working on that I was going to have to turn in. As I was leaving the room, it got to the point where he would say the same thing to me every time. Tim, pray for partial credit. <laughs> and I would look back at him and I would say, yes, sir. And I would spend like the next 48 hours before the test praying for partial credit. I ended, up, I ended up with an A in calculus, 100% on partial credit. I never, on any test, got the right answer at the end of the problem. But I would do everything I knew how to do up to that point and just 
and I would show every like little tiny step of work in hopes that he would give me enough partial credit that when I was wrong at the answer, he would just be merciful <laughs> and give me some points. And, and thankfully, he did. Um, a lot of what I did with Mr. Gravina in my calculus class, I think we can apply directly to how do we work through a passage of Scripture that is confusing to us. So I'm going to outline a little process for us this morning that hopefully can be useful to you in the future, and then we'll apply that process to the passage that we're looking at this morning. And so the process is this. Identify what you know. Does the passage that you're working with give you anything for certain that you can walk away with and then live in light of? So don't just identify it, but actually figure out how can I apply this thing to my life? That's step one. Step two is identify what's difficult or confusing. What challenges or questions arise because of the passage? And then go ahead and ask questions and seek answers for those. What questions do I need to ask in order to figure out what's going on here? Is there anything else in the passage or in the text around it that would maybe help me with what I'm currently working with? At that point, you don't need to pray for partial credit, like I did. Instead, there are two more things you can do. You can allow for the mystery of God. There are some things, because he is just infinitely greater and bigger than us, that we're never going to fully understand. And that should lead us to a place where we just worship the Lord for his greatness and his immensity and his infinite nature, even though our finite brain can't wrap itself around all of who he is. So allow for the mystery of God. And then the other is extend grace. It's possible that on some of these challenging passages of Scripture, you arrive at a place where you disagree with some other brothers and sisters, and that's okay. There are some things we can't disagree on. Jesus Christ lived holy life, died on the cross, was buried, resurrected on the third day. We can't disagree on those things. Exactly what does Peter mean in verses uh, 19, 20, and 21 of First Peter chapter 3, we can disagree on and we can extend grace to one another in the midst of it. And so we're just going to take that and apply it to this passage of Scripture, which is incredibly challenging. Martin Luther says, A wonderful text is this, and a more obscure passage than perhaps any other in the New Testament. So I don't know for a certainty what Peter means. And if Martin Luther can get away with that, then I'm going I'm to get away with saying I don't have a firm grasp on exactly what verses 19 to 21 mean, and we're all going to survive, and we'll agree on some stuff in chapter 4. Sound good? All right. Identify what you know. We're just going to work our way through this. So if you look at verses 8 to 12, Peter unrolls a list of some final encouragements of what holiness should look like. Here's what's in the list. Have unity of mind. Have sympathy and brotherly love. Have a tender heart, a humble mind. Don't repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. If you skip down there into verse 10. Keep your tongue from evil, your lips from deceit. Turn away from evil and do good. Seek peace and pursue it. One of the things we know for certain from this passage of Scripture is that holiness looks a particular way. It's defined by Scripture. We can read throughout the Bible and see exactly what God has to say about how we should live a life that's faithful in following him. We can read and see how Christ lived and see the encouragements that we get. Defined by scripture, holiness looks a particular way. We know that for sure. Here's the other thing we know for sure. Look at verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called. Instead of returning evil for evil, return blessing for evil. We see that throughout scripture. 
You can read it in Proverbs. You see it in the teachings of Jesus. And here it is affirmed in an epistle from 1 Peter. When we bump into someone who would intentionally oppose us or even do evil to us, we should seek to return blessing to them. There's a challenging truth that you could spend your lifetime trying to work on. We can take that away for certain, with certainty from this passage. Look at verses 13 to 17. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. One of the things we take away from the scope of 1 Peter, not just from today's passage, is that we're not to fear those who oppose us, but instead we're to focus on Christ. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Keep reading there. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That's the other thing we know for sure. We should be able to articulate our hope to those who don't share it. Nothing would have been more confusing in Peter's time than for the people who were oppressing or persecuting these Christians to have seen that they just joyfully accepted it. It would have been so off-putting to the persecutor. Peter says, in that moment, You should be ready to articulate why it is that you can remain hopeful and even joyful in the midst of your persecution. And then he also gives an encouragement there, but do it with gentleness and respect. A few weeks ago, we talked about our current political climate and how as Christians we should respond to that, knowing that ultimately Christ is king. And no matter who's elected president here in the United States, things at a micro level might change for us. But at a macro level, Christ is going to reign and things are going to be okay. We can remain hopeful and joyful regardless of the results of the election that's upcoming. There would maybe be an opportunity to explain to someone why you're not crying that the sky is falling. But do it with gentleness and respect. You explain that, well, Christ is going to reign regardless. God is sovereign no matter what happens here. And so even though things may change in our nation, my hope is in Jesus, not in the future president of the United States. We can articulate our hope with gentleness and respect. That's something we can take away for certain. It applies right to our life right now. Look at verses 18 to 22. There's a number of things we can pull out of here, despite how challenging or confusing 19, 20, and 21 are. For Christ also suffered once for sins. We know for sure that Christ willingly suffered an unjust death in our place. That despite his sinlessness... He suffered the punishment that sinful humanity deserves to suffer. We know that for sure. The righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We know for sure that faith in Christ brings the unrighteous to God. Praise the Lord. That our faith in Jesus Christ, his death, and his resurrection takes those who are far from the Lord and brings them into right relationship with the Lord because his blood covers us. Our sin is forgiven thanks to his work. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. We know that Christ, having been put to death on the cross, resurrected. That's the truth. We know it for sure. We can live in light of that. And then things get challenging in verse 19. In which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey. When God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Verse 22, here's another thing we know for sure. 
who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God. Jesus ascended into heaven and he reigns at the right hand of the Lord. There's a whole lot of truth in this passage that we can take away for certain and apply to life despite maybe not being totally clear on what verses 19, 20, and 21 mean. Identify what you know and then live in light of it. If you were to just toss the baby out with the bathwater here and say, there's a confusing chunk in the middle of this section, therefore I'm going to just write off the whole thing or not pay attention to the whole thing or I'm so frustrated by what's confusing that I'm not going to do any work to gather what I can know, you would miss all of that truth. You would also miss all of the application that can come from that. There are some great questions you can ask yourself based on these truths that we've walked through. For instance, how does my life align with a picture of holy living found in Scripture? Even just the things that Peter mentioned, how does my life align with those? When someone in my life is challenging, do I return their evil with more evil or do I look for ways to bless them? You might be in here this morning in a particularly challenging relationship with a coworker or friend or someone that you interact with regularly. In that could be application enough from this passage. What's larger in my heart, a fear of humanity or a reverence for Jesus? Is the hope of eternity visible in my life when I face challenging circumstances? Can I articulate the gospel? Do I view the sufferings in my life as opportunities to model what Christ has done? Do I regularly remind myself of Jesus' resurrection and ascension and worship Him in response? Those are all great things that we can live in light of despite what's confusing in the passage. So if you are uh, spending time regularly reading the Bible and you come across something that you don't know, go ahead and identify what you do know and figure out how it is that that applies to your life. That's step one. Step two is identify what's difficult or confusing. It jumps right off the page at us in verses 19, 20, and 21, and it raises some logical questions. For instance, who did Jesus preach to? Who are the spirits, and what does in prison mean? So where did he go and preach to them? Who is it? Where did it happen? What in the world did he say to them? Those are all questions that come out of verses 19 and 20. Then you get to verse 21, which is about baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. That's a confusing statement. Because we talk about regularly, we saw today that baptism is a response. It's an obedient act after saving faith. It's an outward expression of something that's happened inwardly in your heart. So how do I work with that? And how does that even relate to Noah and everything that was said in 19 and 20? Those are the questions that come up. Once you've identified your questions, seek seek answers. Let me just give you a word of warning there. I wouldn't just go out to Google and type in your question. I did that on Tuesday just to see what would come up. And things got really dicey in a hurry. I would be a little bit more targeted in your question asking than just going to Google and saying, who are the spirits in prison in 1 Peter? Because you'll get a lot of answers, and some of which are way off the wall. Instead, if you've got a study Bible, see what your study notes say. If you're particularly interested in a passage, get a good commentary about it. There's a safe thing you can Google. Best commentary of 1 Peter. And a list of them pops up. And if you're really interested in figuring out this passage, go ahead and purchase one of them and read what it is that that commentator has to say. If there's a pastor or a teacher out there that you really trust, that you like to listen to, go and see if they've got a sermon about the section of Scripture that you're dealing with and see what it is that they have to say. 
Check with a mentor or a, someone that's discipled you or someone in your small group. If you, if you want to, send an email to one of us on staff, and we'd love to talk to you about what we think any given passage means. Seek answers, but just be targeted about the way you do it. Don't just take the top hit on a Google search. Uh, since we've raised the questions, we've identified what we know, we've raised the questions that come from the passage, uh, it would be time to seek answers. And so what I'm going to do this morning is I'm just going to give you the four most common uh, interpretations of this passage of Scripture. That doesn't mean we're necessarily going to arrive at an answer because I don't necessarily have one of the four that I think is absolutely has to be correct. But here's what typically comes up. The first is this, that Christ preached through Noah to those who lived in the days of the ark in the flood. This would be to say that Noah functioned as a prophet at that time, and that the same way that the Holy Spirit empowered Old Testament prophets like Isaiah and Ezekiel to speak to God's people, that the Holy Spirit empowered Noah to preach to those at that time that judgment was coming. In this instance, the spirits in prison would be kind of like a a metaphorical way of saying the human beings trapped in their sin that Christ preached to them through the prophet Noah that judgment was coming and they needed to repent. That's option number one. Number two is that Christ preached to the spirits of sinful human beings who perished during the flood, offering them a second opportunity to repent and be saved. In this interpretation, Christ preaches to them between his death and his resurrection. He goes to wherever uh, those who perished during the flood were and he offers them a second chance to repent and be saved. I will say this about this common reading. I think it contradicts what the rest of Scripture teaches about opportunities to be saved. I think Scripture makes it clear that there is no second chance, that you've got your lifetime to hear about, respond to the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ on your behalf, and you either repent and do that in this lifetime, or it's too late. And so I would toss out number two, though it is a common reading of these verses. Number three is this. Christ preached between his death and resurrection to Old Testament people who had died and were eternally liberated or condemned. Easiest way to understand this one. We put our faith in Jesus looking backward at his work on the cross and in his resurrection out of the grave. And our faith in him looking back at what he has done is what saves us. For an Old Testament person, faith was a forward-looking act, that they were looking toward a Messiah that would come and eventually save them. This reading of verses 19 and 20 says that between his death and resurrection, Christ went and preached to Old Testament people who either had forward-looking faith or didn't. And he either took them to eternal life or they were condemned to eternal separation from him. That would be number three. And then number four, which is the shortest, is that Christ preached victory and judgment over evil angels. If you're jotting these four down, put in parentheses Genesis 6, 1 to 4. That's the story of the Nephilim. Uh, They were angels who existed on earth shortly before the flood. The evil angels that version 4 here, interpretation 4 talks about, are those, those angels. That they were condemned because of their wickedness. And in between his death and resurrection, Christ went and he preached to them. And he just said, there's victory over you. Your judgment is final. Those are the four options. Which leaves us at a place to say, what do we do with those? We asked, we identified what we knew, we identified what was confusing, we asked questions, we sought answers, here's what I've got, how do I work through those? Well, is there any that you can throw out, are there any that you can throw out, because it doesn't align with the rest of Scripture? I think number two can be tossed out. There's no second chance at repentance 
after your life ends. Is there, are there any that don't make sense due to the context of the passage? I would say number three doesn't make a lot of sense. The passage clearly talks about something going on in the days of Noah. And for number three to expand that to all Old Testament people, I don't think is treating the passage correctly. So I would say number three probably isn't a possibility, although there are some people that believe that, and that's fantastic. We'll all get to heaven together, and we won't care. (laughs) That leaves us with either number one or number four. And those, the difference between those hinges on the word spirit. And there's, there could be a long Greek explanation, but there are essentially two ways that you could interpret the word spirit. That it is an angel-type angelic being, different from humanity, or the spirit of a human being. And where different people have interpreted this particular Greek word, they land on either number one or number four. I would lean toward number four, but I'm not dogmatic about it. There's some mystery here that I'm allowing for, and I would extend grace to a brother or sister who believes differently. So that's how I would kind of work through the passage. It's challenging. There are other passages of Scripture that are challenging as well that we can apply this framework to and gather what we can possibly know and leave to mystery what we possibly can't. I think that it's a a fair way to handle challenging passages of Scripture. The section uh, here in 1 Peter ends, verse 21 and 22, with a statement about baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you. We have to rightly understand that. And so Peter gives us a little bit of explanation. Not as a removal of dirt from the body. The actual literal act of being baptized is not what saves an individual. Baptism is a representation of the saving work of faith in a person's heart. So Peter says, baptism doesn't save you by the removal of dirt from the body, but it's an appeal to the Lord for or from a good conscience, that our faith in Christ has given us a clear conscience because our sin has been forgiven, and our baptism is a picture of that. The big takeaway from verse 21 is that the instrument of salvation is not the water of baptism, but faith in the work of Jesus Christ. Overall, what is Peter trying to do here? Why even launch into this conversation? Remember, he's writing to a group of people in churches who are feeling the weight of persecution, the struggle of being persecuted for their faith. Literally, in this passage, they're being opposed because of their righteous living. I think what Peter's trying to do here is to say Noah was opposed because of his righteous living, and judgment was coming upon the earth. And God chose by Noah's faith and his faithful living to save him through the ark, through water. And in the same way, for Peter's readers, they would be reading that judgment may come, but God will save you by your faith. In the same way, by faith, he saved Noah. That's an encouragement to them, that no matter how bad it gets, no matter how difficult life gets, despite our earthly persecution, we have eternal hope. Our faith in Jesus Christ guarantees us eternal hope. I think that is the main takeaway from this section of Scripture. But there's a lot of truth that we can live in light of before we ever have to wrestle through the challenging parts of verses 19, 20, and 21. My hope is that that kind of outline for you is something that you can take and use in your future uh, study of the Bible and reading of Scripture. Figure out what you know and live in light of it. Figure out what you don't know ask questions, seek answers, and then allow for some mystery and extend grace to brothers and sisters who maybe feel differently than you. Uh, We're going to invite the...